you join us on our third week in Jonah. It's a, it's a story, a short story, but we're in the third chapter. So uh, if this is your first time, don't worry, I'll give a bit of uh, a recap um, where we're up to. And please forgive my voice. My fear is that in about 10 minutes, my voice is going to implode. And uh, one of you brave souls is going to have to come up here and carry on um, instead of me. Um, so let's pray that it doesn't happen. And you'll have to bear with me, because I, I don't quite have the storytelling ability, as uh, one would hope for a preacher. Um, shall we pray for God's help? Heavenly Father, thank you that you work through weakness. And I uh, pray, Lord, that you'll sustain my voice. But more importantly, Father, we, I pray that as we've just sung, that you would reveal your glory. That we'll go away thinking more of your greatness. That it would so grip our minds and our hearts that we'd be transformed We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Around this time of remembrance, it's quite common to come across newspaper articles which like to compare that generation which served in uh, the previous world wars uh, with today's generation of young people. You've probably come across these sort of uh, articles in the papers. As we read these sorts of things, they love to make the comparisons. They make comparisons like this. Uh, That generation of young people in World War II, they had their adolescence cut cruelly short. Teenagers were thrust into adulthood just way too soon. And today's generation, they, they wish to stretch out their adolescence for as long as possible, it seems, often relying on parental support so they can continue the party lifestyle, or so the article goes. Another comparison, they say, now we have a, a, a generation which is a rights culture, which demands, this is what I deserve. Whereas that generation, we're reminded, is very much a responsibility culture, which asks, what can I give? And these sorts of contrasts, they're they're overly simplistic, aren't they? They're, They're overly black and white. But there is a ring of truth to them. We've received so much from that generation of brave men and women who gave their lives for our freedom. But what are we doing with that freedom? What are we doing with that gift? And this morning, I think in this third chapter of Jonah, God is going to ask us a similar question. Having received so much grace and freedom from the Lord Jesus Christ... What are we doing with that gift? We're in Jonah chapter 3. If you've closed your Bibles, please open them up again to page 928. I'd love you to follow along with me so you can check what I'm saying is what the Bible says. And we've seen over the past few weeks that this book is a satire. That is, it's a comedy with, with a purpose. Our main character, Jonah, is a figure of utter ridicule. He talks the talk, but he doesn't walk the walk. He's got all the gear, but he's got no idea. So when this story, it would have been a popular story, when it was told around Israel's campfires, everyone would have enjoyed laughing at this hopeless prophet. And yet, this tale has been carefully crafted to make God's people stop and think. Both Israel back then and us here today We're invited to gaze into this story like a black mirror because we're intended, we're supposed to see something about ourselves here. So what are we doing 
with that gift of grace that we've received. Well, let's dive into our story. If you've got one of these mint-coloured handouts, you'll be able to follow along with me and see where, where we're going. But our passage begins with an act of grace, an act of undeserved love. Follow with me, if you would, from verse 1 in uh, chapter 3, page 928. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to that great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Now what do we know about Nineveh? It's uh, surely an ancient city. What can we know about it today? Well actually, surprisingly, we know quite a lot about Nineveh. About 150 years ago, a bunch of archaeologists managed to dig it up in Iraq, modern-day Iraq, and they discovered it was indeed a very impressive city. At its very longest point, it was about four miles wide. Now, that is huge by ancient standards. Its walls were 100 foot high, and they were wide enough for three chariots side by side to race alongside, along top of the walls. Huge city. Uh, More than that, it had palaces, it had temples, it had a library, it had a botanical garden, and get this, it even had a zoo. Extraordinary. This was a city of culture. But God's assessment of this city back in chapter 1 didn't focus on its culture, but focused on its wickedness. The Assyrians were known to be merciless in battle, they, their war machine was endlessly rolling over other cultures, crushing them. They're, they're, they were known to be brutal in their methods of intimidation. And when they would capture enemy nobles, they, they would flay them alive, peel their skin off, and then hang it over the walls of their city gates. And they were known to be blasphemous in their religion. Just listen to this inscription some archaeologists have uncovered regarding the king of Nineveh. This is how he would introduce himself at the top of his emails or his letters. The king of the universe, the unrivaled king, king of all four quarters of the earth, the sun god of the people, the chosen of the gods, the beloved of the gods, the destructive weapon of the gods. You can kind of understand why this guy, the king of Nineveh, and the Assyrians in general, why they were Israel's number one enemy. And yet what does God do in verse 2? God wants to send them a prophet. God wants to reveal himself to them so that they might turn back to him. This is not what they deserve, is it? These verses are an act of grace to Nineveh. But actually, these verses are also an act of grace for Jonah. Notice how God's command here in verse 2 is nearly word for word identical to the one he gave back in chapter 1. Jonah here is given a second chance. He's given a fresh start. He's given a new beginning, which again is not what he deserves You remember that when Jonah was first given this command, what did he do? Well, he ran in the opposite direction. He ran because he didn't want God's mercy going to the enemy. He ran because he thought God's grace is only for the Hebrews and not 
for the nations. So over the past couple of chapters, God has been trying to win Jonah around to his way of thinking. In chapter 1, God revealed to Jonah that he's just as guilty as the pagans. Remember those sailors who completely showed Jonah up. In chapter 2, we saw that God's revealing to Jonah that he's in just as much need of rescue as the nations. There he was, right down in the depths. And yet God mercifully brought him back up to life. So around the campfire, as the story was being told, you can imagine their delight. As they read there in verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Finally, it seems, Jonah has stopped running. Finally, it seems that the God has won Jonah's obedience. But has he won his heart? Having been shown grace by God, is Jonah now willing to extend that grace to the nation's Well, let's read on. You can imagine around the campfire, the people would be enthralled, just waiting, waiting for something to go wrong. Because with Jonah, something always goes wrong. And sure enough, God's act of grace is very soon met with an act of sabotage. Follow with me the second half of verse 3, if you would. Verse 3, second half. Now Jonah, sorry, now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now I'm aware that a sort of surface reading here might make us think that Jonah's doing exactly what God wants him to do. But the details here reveal a very different picture. Those of you with young children will know what it's like to try and ask a child to apologise. It can be a nightmare. Growing up, I had some almighty rows with my sister. We'd, we'd be pulling hair, shouting at each other. Fists would be flying. My mother would separate us. And then finally, when we're calming down, our breathings stopped, uh, stopped being so erratic. She would make us apologise. Now, if you had been in that situation, you'll know that when you're a child, you don't like that command. You don't really want to apologise, but you're kind of forced to because you know what will happen if you don't. And so through gritted teeth, you you dole out an apology which is laced with sarcasm. So I'd say to my sister, I'm so sorry. Just so she knew, actually, I'm not really that sorry. And I wonder, I wonder if that's what we see here. Jonah finally obeys, but he does so like a grumpy child dragging his feet he proclaims God's message but he does it he does his very best to try and sabotage its success find two things firstly notice his method his method in verse three we're told that a visit to Nineveh requires three days now that detail there it doesn't refer to the physical size of the city not even modern day London is is three days walk across No, it's it's a technical detail. It refers to the amount of time it would take for Jonah to successfully deliver his message to the king and to the people. In the ancient Near East, there was a a well-documented protocol for for, for ambassadors when they visited a city like this. So on the first day, the ambassador would enter the city, they would rest from their travels and get to know their surroundings a bit. 
On the second day, they would be granted access to the king. And they would deliver their message to the king, and the king would do, do his thing. And then on the third and final day, the ambassador would be sent off, hopefully with a royal send-off. So you'll recall back in Exodus, when Moses wanted to release the Israelites from slavery, what did he do? He went to the king, to Pharaoh. In two kings, when Elijah wanted to reform Israel's religion, what does he do? He goes to the king, because he knew he's the man who's going to put into effect everything. And so we should expect Jonah here, on the second day, to go to the king to deliver his message. But no, that's not what he does. Look at that detail in verse 4. On the first day, Jonah started into the city and proclaimed. It seems that Jonah doesn't want the king to hear his message. So you can kind of imagine him mumbling on the street corner on the very outskirts of the city, uh, speaking to the powerless common people, hoping to minimise the effect of God's message because he doesn't want mercy coming to Nineveh. But it's not only Jonah's method that's a bit dodgy, it, it also seems his, me- his message is somewhat lacking as well. Verse 4, he proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now compare that very brief statement with the very many eloquent words of Jonah's prayer back in chapter 2. Here we, here we have a mere five words in the Hebrew, which amount pretty much to a bare threat. There's no mention of God. There's nothing about repentance. There's no possibility of hope being offered to this people. 40 more days and it's over. You're dead. He speaks as though Nineveh's destruction is a bit of a done deal. He hopes that, a bit like Sodom and Gomorrah, they're going to be overturned with fire. So it's ironic, then, that Jonah's title in chapter 1 is Jonah, the son of Amittai. Amittai means son of faithfulness. Jonah is anything but faithful. Here is an act of sabotage. But remarkably, what follows is an act of repentance. Follow with me from verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Here is superb comic irony. Despite Jonah's very best efforts to fail, God ensures that he succeeds. So those street corner mumblings amongst the common folk, it it kind of hits them to the heart. There's there's, there's a groundswell of genuine repentance, and it kind of goes viral. And and what happens in verse 6? Finally, the news reaches the king, who was the original target. And it's the exact reverse of of the, the expected procedures. The king gives the rubber stamp to the people's repentance. And in fact, he pushes it even further. Follow with me in your Bibles from verse 6. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. 
Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. The king's decree here is extraordinary. Where once he called himself the unrivaled king of the universe, what does he do here? He denies his sovereignty before God. He exchanges his throne for an ash heap. His royal robes for sackcloth. Not only that, but he then decrees the entire city to join with him. Nobody's to be excluded, young or old, rich or poor, human or animal. Everyone was called to repent. Now those listening around the campfire at this point, this response would have just seemed comically over the top. So mum and dad, Uncle Dave, the kids, Bessie the cow and Fido the dog, they're all covered in sackcloth and they're all fasting. Seems a bit of a joke, doesn't it? But actually, the joke's on the Israelites. Because not once in their history up till this point have they shown any level of repentance like this. Not once has their king issued a decree like that. Just to compare for a moment the Ninevites' repentance with that of Jonah's last week, where Jonah was all talk and no action, all the gear and no idea. The Ninevites here are wholehearted. They're radical. Where Jonah... I don't think once acknowledged his sin and his guilt before God. Here the Ninevites openly confess all their evil and their violence. Where Jonah seems to presume on God's rescue because he has a heroic grasp on God. Here the Ninevites don't presume anything. Who knows, they say verse 5, verse 9. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger that we won't perish. It's ironic. Jonah said that Nineveh would be overturned. And of course it was. It was overturned, but just not in the way he wanted. This once wicked city turns and believes in the living Lord God. This genuine act of repentance is then met with a divine act of compassion. Finally, verse 10. Verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. The fact that God shows Nineveh compassion here is quite frankly a miracle. I don't don't think my description of Nineveh early on was exaggerated in any way. So along with Jonah, we may well be asking the question, how, how can a holy God show mercy to the guilty and and be fair in doing so? And surely this is a huge miscarriage of justice. And then here is, I think, one of the big unanswered questions of the Old Testament, that there's a tension here. How can God... A holy God, show compassion to the guilty. 
And the answer comes around 800 years later. When the blameless and innocent Son of God set out for crucifixion. There he willingly bore upon himself the full judgment of the Father. The justice that should have fallen on the guilty fell instead on him, his hands and his feet. The, the, The crown of thorns, the spear in his side, justice was satisfied there. And with arms open wide, the guilty are welcomed in. Clothing us with his righteousness, his innocence, giving us new life through his resurrection power. How can God show compassion to the guilty Ninevites? Well, the same way he can show compassion to you and me. Through the ultimate act of compassion at the cross. Before we close, I think we ought to spend some time now considering why this chapter was written. It's a story, it's a true story for people back then, but it's also for us here today. And I wonder if there are just three things that we might consider, stop and consider as we stare into this this black mirror. First thing I'd like us to consider is the Ninevites' radical repentance. I mentioned earlier on that not once in Israel's history do they show repentance like this. And this chapter, in effect, was written to shame those people around the campfire. They had so much of God's character to reveal to them, so much grace. But what did they do with it? Whereas the Ninevites, what did they have? They had a tiny thimbleful of information about God. And what did they do with it? Really, that's the point Jesus makes in in our second reading earlier on. Jesus said this, The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment and condemn this generation. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. I think it's, it's a safe bet to say everyone here in this room this morning knows more about God and his character than the Ninevites ever did. Humor me, just for a moment, humor me. Consider how much has been revealed to you. Maybe those, all those Sunday school classes you had growing up. Um, maybe all those talks you've heard here from the Bible. Uh, maybe all those um, Bible discussions you've had in your small groups. All the books that are, that are on offer to you at the back. Well, given what you know, What do you think the Ninevites would say to you on that day, on the day of judgment? We need to ask ourselves, along with what Jesus asked us to ask of ourselves, is how radical is our repentance? Because there is a danger, isn't there, that we're all too much like Jonah. All talk, no action. All the gear, but no idea. When instead, we should be like the Ninevites. Radical and real action. Friends, we must consider the Ninevites' repentance. But secondly, I'd like us to to consider God's compassion for the lost. When we're 
talking up here about sharing our faith with our friends and colleagues, talking about Jesus. I'm, I'm aware it's all too easy for preachers to make us feel really guilty. It's really easy to do that. But guilt is a terrible motivation. I have often gone away from sermons elsewhere feeling like that grumpy child forced to obey his mother when actually I don't really want to. I go away thinking, well, I suppose I should talk to someone about Jesus. I think a far more compelling reason for us to extend God's grace to others is if we remember that we ourselves are recipients of grace. Like Jonah, we are sinners who have been saved from a terrible death and we can extend that to others. So we shouldn't think of evangelism or sharing our faith as something we have to do. It's not something we have to do. Friends, it is something we get to do. We get to share with people about our great God who made us and gave us everything we enjoy. We get to share with people about the God who loves us enough to give us his only son. We get to share with people about this rescue which which can save us for all eternity. Friends, this is good news. So if we've received this grace, this gift, what are we doing with it? Like Jonah, God has shown compassion to us in order that we might show compassion to others. God uses us. We are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. So consider God's compassion to you and extend that compassion to others. And finally, final thing for us to consider. Consider God's power. Consider God's power to save have you ever wondered, I'm sure you have, why it is that some people turn and follow Jesus, follow Jesus where others don't? Why is it that some of our friends, some of our family, some of our workmates hear the gospel and put their trust in him, whereas others don't? And often when we ask that question, often we, we, we put the finger squarely on ourselves, don't we? We convince ourselves that if only we were more persuasive in our words... If only we had really clever arguments at our fingertips. If only we made the most of every opportunity with everyone. Then they would turn and follow Jesus. Often I'm I'm, I'm caught thinking that in order for God to save somebody, surely he needs me in best evangelistic shape. Surely God needs me to, to answer all of those really hard questions. Surely God needs me. In order to save. And if this chapter teaches us anything. It's that he doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. Here he saved an entire pagan city. Through some frankly awful preaching. God's power to save. It overrules human weakness. Human sinfulness. God doesn't work despite our failings he works through our failings so friends it is okay to be weak it's okay it's okay to be a jar of clay and the sooner friends we realize this the sooner we'll start praying to the god who does have the power to save i often talk about my dad because he is a great evangelist but i know my dad begins each day by praying 
for opportunities to speak about Jesus that day. Uh, He prays every day for boldness. He prays every day that God would save those whom he speaks to. He does that because he's convinced that God has the power to save and that God uses our weak words to do that. This passage should encourage us. And driven out this week, I pray, by God's compassion for us, Let's pray that we'll be willing to extend that compassion to others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom you have turned from your fierce anger to us and given us life. We praise you for his death. We praise you for his resurrection. And we praise you for the power of your spirit that now indwells us. By that spirit, please send us out now with boldness. Send us out to be messengers of this compassion. Messengers of this life. And Father, make us prayerful. Help us to depend on you and not ourselves. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.